If we let these machines actually care about the truth, they will have to cultivate wisdom. But how do we do them to care? How do we do this with human children? How do we turn them from animals into moral agents? We have to mentor them properly. We have to create the right environment. We have to become the best possible role models. I'm here with John Vervage. And who are you, John? Tell me. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, uh, I am an associate professor at the University of Toronto in cognitive psychology and cognitive science. I do work on intelligence, rationality, uh, wisdom, consciousness, altered states of consciousness, mystical and transformative experience. And I am the author of two uh, video series. Uh, one is Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. The other is After Socrates. Uh, like you, I have a regular uh, YouTube uh, show with, I, when I talk to people called Voices with Raveki. And then I also have another thing I do, the Cognitive Science Show, where I do a bunch of uh, cognitive science topics like consciousness, the nature of the self. We're releasing one uh, with Greg Enriquez on what, transcendent naturalism, how to give a nat- an account of transcendent experiences within a naturalistic framework. So that's the kind of stuff I do. I am also... Um, I guess the figurehead, is that the right word, of the Raveki Foundation, uh, where we create communities of practices, courses, workshops, um, and we support uh, a respond network of other emerging uh, communities of practice uh, where people are, are serious about uh, trying to cultivate wisdom and virtue and enhance meaning in their life, perhaps a sense of the sacred, whether or not that's within or without a religious uh, tradition. So I uh, do a lot of that work. As well, so I think that's the the only parts of me that you're. I give it up wanna... for so many things that you do. <laughs> so you are a professor. You are doing podcasts, uh, founders, so many things, and also you are going to other people podcasts with all the workflow that you have. <laughs> so it's amazing. So uh, what out of all the things that uh, you do, what bring you the most joy uh, out of all the activity? What podcasts specifically, or what? Uh, type of conversation or what uh, maybe job you have in your life or your family or what would have ever I don't know if I can pick one thing I mean I, I really like uh, uh, I, uh, I'm a theorist in a scientific sense in a philosophical sense I love it when I come up with a good theoretical argument and other people appreciate it I love that uh, but I also you know create and uh, refine and help teach practices uh, like philosophical contemplation, philosophical fellowship, like uh, dialectic and a dialogos. And I love being in that state when I'm in the flow, that shared flow state with people. I feel like a little bit of Socrates has come alive for me. I love both of those uh, a lot. Those are, I guess those are the, my two favorite out of all the things. I love so much of what I do. It's hard for me but for to answer your question, but those are the two perhaps if I had to pick, yes. And uh, you have a family as well? Yes. Um, I have two sons. Uh, one is living with me because he, he, uh, he's just recently got permanent position as a high school biology teacher. And I'm very proud of him. My <laughs> younger son, he is, uh, he finished one apprenticeship program. He's doing another. He did extremely well. Top of, uh, not just top of his class, top of the program. He's a music producer, sound engineer, and a music composer. Uh, just, I'm really proud of him too. Um, and um, 
And then my partner, uh, she has two kids uh, that uh, uh, her son and uh, her daughter, and they're both also young adults. I have a very good relationship with them, two very good relations. I love them too, and I try to uh, be as, as provide a good model for them as much as I can in, in their lives. So how much money do you make with all this stuff that you make? Like, uh, with the how much money? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you have to understand, uh, most, most, um, all of the money that comes in, I, I mean, I take some money, like if I go and speak somewhere and they give me an honorarium or something like that, but all the money that comes in actually goes to a, uh, non-for-profit organization, the Verveki Foundation. I get a small honorarium from that on a monthly basis. But, and then all of that rest of that money, like 80% of it goes into getting people to work for the foundation, supporting projects, uh, supporting scientific experiments, uh, uh, going into like the series I produce, hiring a film crew, all of that. So I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm not hurting for money. Uh, but I mean, I live in the one bedroom apartment, uh, with my son. Uh, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, af- I'm not after wealth that, um, um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll get some money from the books. I'll get some money from the online courses. I'll get, you know, uh, but uh, again, never more than like 25%, uh, because I don't want, um, I don't want, I, I well, I don't want to be tempted by, wealth and I don't want to be tempted by too much fame. So I'm trying to keep an arm's length distance. I've, 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 I've only hired people and partnered with people who are committed to not only doing things with virtuosity, but doing things as virtuously as we possibly can. Um, what really does that want, mean with virtuosity? What does that mean? Well, that means, um, well, it, it means it means some c- concrete, specific things. Like I said, I try to keep an arm's length distance from the things that can inflate a person. Um, I try to share credit. Um, I do things in concert with other people, so the attention's not all focused on me. I delegate and I defer, and I try to raise up into the limelight other people, um, so that things don't get over focused on me in in, in a fashion. Um, I try to make sure that. Um, like I said, most of the talent, um, most of the time, most of the money is being given out of love uh, and, and, and because people are really wanting uh, to make a difference in the world, to address the meaning crisis, to help people uh, fill in a vacuum that's been left for most of them by um, the recession of religion. Uh, so that's what I mean virtuously. I want, I want, I want... Well, I'll put it in a sense. I want to die a good man. I want people to say he he made mistakes and he far from perfect. Uh, he wasn't a saint or a sage, but he was a good man. And throughout, he was a good man, and that's very very important to me. You know, one of the proudest things I'm uh, I'm proud of is my my stepdaughter was talking with my partner, uh, and I wasn't around. And my partner was saying, you know, and and she and her best friend were talking. And they, they just happened to be talking about me. And she said, you know, John's really reliable. He's a reliable person. And my stepdaughter said, oh, he's more than reliable. He's solid like a rock. And that I'm like, you know, I've got a lot of other accolades and I, I'm grateful for them. But that, like that to me, I want, I want it, right? Uh, I, I want, I want, that, that's what I aspire to be. 
So uh, since you don't like to have a lot of money, what a better question to ask that if I give you $1 trillion, how do you spend it in this society to have maximum impact of in the world? In the right way would, that you're describing. Yeah, well, what I would do is I would uh, I would try to divide it equally between furthering the cognitive science around all these things that I'm talking about. Uh, I put a lot of money into the Verveki Foundation because I genuinely believe in all the things it's doing, all the educational programs, all the outreach programs. And, uh, and then I would put money into uh, the Respond Network and other uh, people, you know, Rafe Kelly, Benita Roy, Greg Enriquez, uh, people who are doing amazing, important work. Uh, and not just theoretical. They're, they're doing actual educational, transformative work. I would do everything I can. Can, uh, can you can you explain me a bit more detail? Like you actually have one trillion dollars. This is so much money. So how do? Uh, what is the best way to spend it in a society to have the maximum impact? Like maybe oh, uh, to yeah. the poorest so, country. Like actual examples of dri- drive me through well, what you are going to do with them. This this, this is and. So what I just said bleeds into the final vision of that of, with all that money, which is I want to steal the culture. I, well, I want to promote the stealing of the culture. I, I want to do what Christianity did, like this book, right? The Rise of Christianity, right? I want to do what Christianity did. They created all of these small communities of practice, new ways of being, new ways of seeing, new ways of relating to each other, the way of agape, right? And, and then they networked together and they created a whole alternative culture that eventually captured the Roman Empire and addressed questions of meaning, wisdom, spirituality, connection, but also, you know, questions uh, 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 of, you know, poverty, uh, 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 medical help, like do all of that. Because we, we, I am convinced that neither the academic establishment, the market, or the state can solve the meaning crisis. This is, this is gonna, this is a deeper problem. This requires a comprehensive cultural transformation. And I would pump all of that money into where I think that could be afforded, where that could be generated. Can can you define me the meaning crisis? what, what yes. does that mean? So let's start from the cognitive science. The very processes that make you intelligently adaptive make you perpetually susceptible to self-deception. And in that's English, self-destruction. In English. Pardon me? <laughs> in English, if you want to say it in English, I'm, I'm joking because that was a lot of words that I didn't understand. Oh, okay. <laughs> so let me give you a more concrete example. I'll just give you a concrete example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Okay, can you pay attention to everything that's in your environment? No. Right? In fact, there is so much in your environment, even in the room you're in. You you spend the rest of your lifetime paying it. So you have to screen off most of that in order to solve your problems, achieve your goals. Yes? Yes. But that means that constantly you're ignoring information. Yes? Yes. Now, is it possible from time to time that the information you're ignoring is exactly the information you most need? Yes, very possible. That's self-deception. 
That's an example of self-deception. The very processes you're using in order to deal with all of the information so that you can solve your problems make you ongoingly subject to self-deception. And cultures have figured this out. And they figured out, okay, now I don't want to shut off that adaptive function. I don't want to say, oh, pay attention to everything all the time because you can't do it. So what I have to do is I have to figure a way to train your attention so it gets more flexible. It gets better at dealing and opening itself up to those moments of insight when you've realized and helping you regulate yourself so you can adjust to those different insight, self-regulation, adaptivity. This is wisdom. And so what you need, you need a bunch of practices. Like you want to train your attention. You might do meditation. You might do contemplation. You might do a martial art. And the thing is, no one practice will give you everything you need to be wiser. You need a whole bunch of practices working together. I call it an ecology of practices. And, ac- and across time and culture, people have come up with ecologies of practices. And then they found homes for those. So people could practice together, support each other. And then they would, those homes would network. And this is, those homes would network together. Those are religions. That's what religions and, you know, ancient philosophy. So this is what Christianity and Buddhism and all these things did for us. Now, the problem is that has receded for most people. Most people would not, like the, the, the demographic group that is growing faster than any other is the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S. That means they have no official religious allegiance. And many people who still go to church or go to the mosque or go to the synagogue or go to the temple, it's not working for them. It doesn't jive with the scientific technological worldview. And so they're hungry for wisdom, right? Now, wisdom isn't just an intellectual thing. It's, remember I said it's that it's about adaptive. Think about an organism. It's adaptive if it fits, if it's environment, if it belongs really well. So when that goes out of sync, you feel like you don't belong. The the world doesn't make sense. There isn't a home for you. I don't mean a shelter, but you don't feel like you're at home in the world, in the universe, even in your own skin. And that can lead to mental health issues or addictions or trying to escape into the virtual world or, you know, or, or, or turn things that aren't religion, like superheroes and comic books into, you know, replace, uh, bad replacements for religion. That's the meaning crisis. That's the meaning crisis. How did that work? Did that did that work as an explanation? Yeah. You are Great. amazing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, it worked. So now coming back to the question that, so how you spend $1 trillion, let me try to rephrase uh, for me to understand on how does that connect with it. So you want to put the infrastructure in the society to to create something uh, not like a religion, but to be put in the basis uh, that people need to learn stuff and to feed their soul with all this stuff. So you need to create the infrastructure for yes. people to thrive in the society with these one trillion dollars. Yes. So pe- so people f- had a regular home and a cultural framework that supported and legitimated the cultivation of wisdom and meaning in life, this kind of connectedness, belonging that I'm talking about, such that we could see not only that problem as a whole addressed, but its attendant problems 
the you know the addiction crisis and the loneliness epidemic and all these other things that people are talking about the virtual escape attempts and all these things and i would argue and i've argued with other people like we've argued together that all of these things are share the property that people are hungry for meaning and wisdom in some fashion and so if we could address that need we could ameliorate a lot of these other problems in a coordinated and comprehensive fashion. And uh, now, so now if you start explaining on how, so you're going to build schools, you're going to build online programs, like now yeah. I think if you can start explaining, I will understand what you mean, that you put the, the basis for me to build on. Well, well, that's very much. I mean, so it's, Something like, and I've been working with and talking with something like the folk high school uh, movement that was in the Nordic countries. Uh, and, you know, it, it, that movement was like they created sort of secular monasteries all over. And what they did, it was had to do with what's called Bildung. And there's no good translation for that German term. But it was basically the cultivation of wisdom and meaning. And they turned all these societies which were impoverished agrarian authoritarian regimes into what you now see these are some of the best places in the world to live even though they have harsh environments and so what i'm talking about isn't pie in the sky this has already happened in in our past and we could do something like this again on a grand scale you you basically build they're kind of like schools and they're kind of like monasteries they're kind of like dojos they're sort of in between all of these and you network them and for us Nowadays, they don't have to be brick and mortar, uh, right? They could also be largely virtual, and that's what we're doing. Uh, we, we've just created a portal website called Awaken to Meaning where people can go in and they can join groups that are doing some basic practices. They can take courses. They can attend workshops. They can pursue more advanced stuff. That's it. And just do more and more of that, not just the Verveki Foundation, but as many groups in a network and, and build it out. Just build it out. Like I, like, like I said, there's so many other people. I went last year to Rafe Kelly's return to the source. It was a profound, uh, ecology of practices, just, prof you know, deeply transformative experience. He's got a lot to offer as well. And, and like I say, and there's other people. There's Steve March and there, there's Benita Roy and there's all the, you know, I mentioned already Greg Enriquez and, and, uh, and, I could go on and on about the people. We're building a network, a network of communities of practice that are doing the very thing we're talking about here to try and bring about these transformations. Now, on the other side, that's what I'm also trying to do as much of the science as I can to make sense of all of this and help, you know, give the knowledge that is requisite for the wisdom. Uh, so this is my, uh, my question regarding to, so there is, uh, a big society now of self-help books. Yeah. So, so this is not what you are referring to. And no. What is and what is the difference between what you are doing and what they are doing? See the uh, the 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 danger the danger with the self-help movement is often it's not based on very good science. That's one danger. Um, the other is it it fits into kind of an individualistic. Um, autodidact self-teaching model and, and and you look across if you look at the science and if you look across the wisdom traditions across again culture and history they recommend against that very strongly they you know, you, you you actually get better um, in concert with other people 
Uh, and so the self-help movement, I think, I mean, I don't want to tar everything, but if I, so if I have to generalize, because we're talking about the whole thing, I think it has exacerbated the problem by in, entrenching that framework of individualism um, and autodidactism and spiritual but not religious is a is a phrase people use to talk about that. And the problem with that is what generally happens is people just reinforce their biases and their self-deceptions. They can often go down rabbit holes. Now, sometimes it works. I'm not saying it never does. But the probability that they will get locked into something that's actually not virtuous and wise is very high and very significant. And secondly, little isolated individuals can't bring about the major changes we need in our collective intelligence that we need to address some of the worldwide problems like global warming, you know, the, the possibility of, of a significant environmental degradation. Um, you know, I, I won't go on with the, the, all the metacrisis problems that we're facing, but that's what we need. Like no one, no one person, no, like, Isolated individuals, let me just give you something I'm also working on. Isolated individuals are not going to do anything about the advent of artificial general intelligence, which threatens our society and our culture and perhaps our, the, all of humanity at a level that we haven't ever like encountered except maybe like the Bronze Age collapse of civilization or something. And no, like isolated individuals are not going to tackle that issue. We need as much collective wisdom and collective labor and effort and, and a new set of cultural norms to address that as anything else. So uh, for me to understand, to rephrase what you said, so the difference between what you are saying and Jordan Peterson is saying with the other uh, gurus, yes. <laughs> let, let's say, uh, of the industry of self-help is, ba so you are basing your truth in science and also you are leaving the self center of, of the individual that you, that you need to cure. And it becomes like as a whole that we're working yes. together as a whole. Yes. Uh, getting the proper balance between individual wisdom and collective wisdom, which of course is also something, and I'm not saying they were great at it, but the, the but the the legacy religions and the ancient philosophies were trying to do. They were trying to get that balance because they understood that that's what's needed to solve the most pressing problems. We have collective so, action problems. We have to solve collectively. So, um, how do you learn faster in your life? How do you learn faster? Um, it depends what you mean by faster. Can you be a little bit clearer? Uh, you, uh, how, what's the best ways to learn, let's say, in comparison to other ways? For example, you can maybe meditation or maybe listen books or what are things that work ah, for you, to, you to, yeah. to work, to learn faster, to skip some steps? I don't know. Uh, uh, I, I think learning from other people that have trod this path, and again, cross-culturally and cross-historically can save you from reinventing the wheel and making a lot of uh, useless mistakes. I think you need to learn in the, in the multiple ways of knowing, not just 
propositions, but you not just beliefs. You don't, you're not like you should like, let's talk about a virtue. A virtue isn't just having a belief. We, we, we know this because you, people can get trained in, you know, uh, moral philosophy and have all these beliefs and make all these arguments. And that doesn't make them more moral. That doesn't work. It's not enough. You also have to have the right skills. You also have to be able to develop the right states of mind. Like being kind isn't just to believe something or having the right skills. It's to have the right perspective, to have the right empathetic connection to somebody, right? And then you also have to alter your identity. You have to change your character, right? And so these are these are different kinds of knowings, and you have to train all of them in the appropriate way, and you also have to train how they all correct and constrain and afford each other. That's, again, wisdom. And if you want to learn something well, like think about, like think about, okay, I talked to my, my partner. I re- like part of what it is to, to, to love someone is like you really want to learn about them. Now, do I just want to form beliefs about her? No. I need to develop skills, communication skills, connection skills, listening skills. I have to have states of mind when she's in a particular place. I need to come in and be fully present, empathetically connective. I, I, I need to like reciprocally open with her. As she opens up, I have to open, like I have to get into that resonance. And I have to bind the way my identity is changing to how hers is changing. And when all of that's working and it's working in concert, right, then I really know this person. And I don't know if that's faster, but it's deeper and better and more powerful. And so that's how I would would answer your question. Uh but general in your life, I, I understand. It's very. I understand. Uh, let me rephrase as well to just make sure that. They so you are saying learning is a lot of things. Learning is just understanding a different perspective about thing. Uh, just seeing from above something, from inside, from outside. So it's it's mm-hmm. so many things. It's not one dimensional thing that uh, you just learn one plus one. It's uh, so many things. So this is. Well, that's right. Understood. But in in your uh, experience in your life, what are the most uh, helpful tools of learning? For example, you have a podcast and you speak with other people. You read books, as I understood. Like I said, ah. I see behind you, or may, maybe meditation. What's the uh, fa- some tricks that you found for learning? <laughs> so I mean, there. I mean, so what uh, uh, the. The art of memory, uh, there's two parts to learning. One is memory. The other is problem solving. And both of them are the, uh, and William James talks about this, you know, both of them are ultimately the art of attention. How are you paying attention? So if you want to remember something, what you have to do is you have to, and this has to do with a lot of my work, uh, what I call relevance realization, you have to find a way to make the pieces of some information relevant to each other as they are relevant to you, right? So I sometimes this, do this with- This is the with, memory thing that you are referring to. It's called a mnemonic, yeah. This is called chunking, and you want to chunk, and then once you've made chunks, you want to chunk your chunks um, as much as you can. And then, but you, but it's not just it's not just grouping. You have to group so that they, they, wow, you get a strong sense they belong together. All these things belong together and they belong to you. So when you're learning, you're always trying to think about these dimensions of connection. How do those things connect each other so that I'm feeling how they're connecting to me so that I can connect to other people? So when I'm reading, I'm not just reading. 
I'm trying to, how can I, like, I'm, I, I, like, that's why I, that, this is, I think, the difference between studying and just reading. I'm trying to find connections in the, te- let's say I'm reading a text, connections in the text that really connect to me such that I know I could use it to connect to other people. And then I make notes around the connections, all of those dimensions of connections. But I, but as I said earlier, Phidias, I'm not just doing that with my, like, sentences. I'm doing it with, you know, when I'm doing learning skills, when I'm learning perspectives, when I'm learning character traits. And I'm also trying to also do that with how they all integrate together. And the more I do that, so for example, I never read a single book. If we're just talking about like reading a book, I read multiple books and I see how they talk to each other. And so how they can talk to me so that I can improve how I can talk to other people. I never just read that. I'm too old. I don't have time for that. Right. I, is that more along the what uh, the kind of answer you were looking for? Yeah. So, but I want more because very interesting. So you're reading, uh, you are reading four books, and you're trying to understand what are the connections, connections between them. How do they speak to each other? How do they challenge each other? How do they generate questions to each other? On the same field, though, right? Or, maybe. Um, or, or they can be closely related fields. They can be adjacent to each other because then sometimes making a connection across one of those boundaries can be really, really helpful and insightful. But remember, I'm not just making connections. I'm making connections that, right, resonate. They, they, With they, you. oh, right. Uh, that's relevant. I can see, and not just for John. Oh, now I understand. And I could explain that to somebody else. They, oh, that would help me connect this or connect that. Like you, you have to pay attention in this very multi-directional connective manner. And then you will learn much generally faster, but more importantly, much more deeply. And it will transfer. It won't just stay in the book. You'll make it. You're, you're training yourself as you're learning to transfer what you're learning and to make connections. And that's what both helps you remember and solve problems with your information. So you started saying about the first one is remembering the thing. And the second part of uh, learning is uh, solving problems with the Solving problems, yeah. Very. <laughs> uh, because w- when I'm, I'm like, I'm 23. And when I look my, my, wow. my, <laughs> my life to, to learn stuff, I'm like, I want to skip corners. I want to like see how other people are learning faster. So I, because yeah i'm i'm not i'm not sure very much about i mean you can learn faster by if you learn in this integrated multidimensional fashion and and especially if you build in like i said those dimensions of relevance how are things relevant to each other how are they relevant to me so i can be relevant to others and train yourself like and that takes practice you can't just say that to yourself you have to practice paying attention that way processing the information that way then I think that's how you do it. Uh, but I can't give you a magic formula, like just do this and you'll learn faster. I don't think such a thing exists. So uh, I am, as I mentioned, young. And uh, I found now in my life the last three or four years that uh, it's not super interesting the other stuff that the other people in my age are doing, like going out with girls or going to... Um, or smoking weed or just going out in the clubs. And I found that this path of like understanding of the world yeah. is 
is yeah. the most sexy path uh, ever. And so uh, I'm curious to hear uh, your relationship with this path and when you discovered this path of uh, understanding. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you something my mother said to me um, when I was a young adult. When I was an adolescent, in fact. She said to me, John, you were born old. Um, and um, so I've always, we study this, it's called need for cognition. Um, I, I've always been this way. Um, I, and I'm also quite introverted by nature. So a lot of the stuff that people want to do, like you're mentioning, doesn't hold much of an attraction for me. I want to understand, I want to learn. Need for cognition means you don't just wait for problems to come. You pose problems to yourself and then you go out and seek understanding and knowledge and hopefully perhaps even wisdom. Um, but I think, I mean, of course, there was a lot of foolishness in me, like everybody else. Um, and what you're now talking about is maturation. Um, um, and that, that that's um, that's a tricky thing maturation how to how to how to make it work um it takes i mean maturation depends of course on your personal responsibility but also depends on the environment you're brought up in and 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 the kind of network social network you belong to Uh, um so there are some places where you know maturity is demanded from you earlier on in life and there's other places where you can be infantile for like wealth can protect people from maturity we know this right <laughs> um in, in in um kind of noxious ways um so i would say you have a high need for cognition i took a look at some of the stuff you do on youtube and what you just said to me and that seems to be uh, something that drives maturation. You're willing to listen to other people and other perspectives. That's very important for maturation. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think you are getting a sense you want to make a difference. The kind of questions you're asking are probative questions. They're not the typical interview questions, which I'm enjoying, by the way. Um, so I think you're on good, I think you're on a good track if you want my opinion. So uh, since we're in the topic, uh, so yes, I have a, another channel and we get millions of views on the other channel, on the entertainment channel. Uh, um, a lot of times uh, it's a big thing that I'm struggling because like, w- what is the right to show to this uh, <laughs> one yeah. million, two million, three million people? That oh. want, what's the message that I need to portray? Like, oh, yeah. but also with the way that it needs to get views and like, what is the qualities and what is, and it's like a lot of times uh, we're making mistakes and we, we're just yeah. doing stuff for views or for money or for, and so it's like, and, w- but w- what's the right message fundamentally to present? Because a lot of times a philosophy uh, says, uh, if you go and ask that you, it's better to show three different things like uh, to people, maybe, uh, to be humble, but maybe uh, the other time is to have confidence and like what well, is, is yeah. so many contradictory things. That, uh, and how do you portray that with a story in the video? And it's like you don't want to be preaching to people. They, you want the, all these messages to be indirectly because they hit hard. And so I, I'm, wow. I, I'm, I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on like, how do you think we, we should use this, uh, power that we have, uh, uh, as YouTubers, uh, especially in the entertainment part, part that I am. Well, first of all, well, let me 
comment on, I'm very impressed, uh, you know, that sense of responsibility, the sense of the trade-off relationship between various virtues, um, and then how to balance the virtue off against, uh, you know, the necessities of the medium and, you know, you don't want to preach to people. You need to be in, you, I mean, you, you, some of this could have come directly out of Aristotle or Plato. Uh, so first of all, that's great. Uh, even the way you frame, uh, like I teach this, the way you formulate, the way you frame the problem is just as important as how you're trying to solve it. Um, so first of all, uh, uh, part of my answer is keep framing that problem the way you're framing it and the way you're <laughs> committed to it and identifying with it, because I think that's really important. I think, I, 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 you know, I, 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 I I'm being a little bit funny here, but I'm also being serious because, you know, that, that, that's something I want to always aspire to trying to frame these problems as comprehensively and as virtuously as possible. And, and for me, um, the way I have tried to buttress that, um, is to try and find people who I trust. Uh, because they have the combination of the expertise and the commitment to virtue and getting the balance between the virtue and, you know, the rhetoric of the medium um, and letting them direct me at times, letting them correct me at times, um, letting them bring perspectives to me that I don't have. Um, it's kind of what I said to you earlier. Try, I'm trying not – I th I, so I want to be very clear. I will – like you, I will take individual responsibility. I share that notion with my colleague and friend, Jordan Peterson. But I also believe very much in, you know, collective intelligence of groups and how they can uh, modify and correct each other's behavior. And, and then what, what I do is I also allow that spread. I find I, 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 I allow people to earn my trust and then I entrust them and trust things. And then if they find people they trust, I extend my trust. Um, and then if I do this in terms of trust around virtue and virtuosity, those are the two things we're talking about here, how to be virtuous and how to have virtuosity, then that, 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 I, that generally steers me right. And it also, it, it also, it, it's like, like you said, it's, it's an, it's a, it's a, it's a message by showing, not by saying it's an indirect message that also gets into the audience that they want to, right, come at this with good faith and with a balance of virtue and virtuosity and talk to each other about it and challenge me, but in a respectful manner, et cetera. Um, so that's how I try to wrestle with it. It sounds to me like you're already like, just it sounds to me like you're probably doing something like this. Uh Yes, when you are describing this, I was I was like, oh fuck, it's amazing because uh, we have like a group of seven people. Also, I have a, a, my my best friend is my high school teacher in physics, and because they see that what we are doing is powerful, they are very uh, in inside, like they are very passionate, and motivated to be yeah. around and describe, and we 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 argue a lot of times the philosophical stuff. Like, for example, I'm sending the, uh, a video to my teacher and he's, we're reviewing it. And like, sometimes this is a, a legit thing that we did for our previous video. So I said, uh, in the end of the video, um, so our goal is to, was to handcuff with a hundred people 
uh, with a hundred strangers. So I started the video and uh, my goal was to find a hundred strangers to handcuff myself. And at, uh, at a hundred people, um, uh, we thought that is a hundred people, but after we reviewed the footage, it was actually 86 people. So uh-huh. I needed to, to say it. So we said, I, I consider my, uh, the challenge a failure, but I said in the video after I filmed me, I said, not, uh, I don't want to be like the other YouTubers that they are lying to you guys. I want to say, tell you the truth. So after, 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 uh, and we said that it's a failure of video and it was 86, but even I know that's the right thing to do, but even that we took it a step further and we cut the thing. I don't want to, to, uh, to like the other YouTubers and I'm the good person. The other are bad. So it is like, we removed that and we're like, I want to be honest with you. And it's we remove the part that I want to be like the other YouTubers. Right. So we're, we're, we're yeah. working so much on the, but it's like this video will actually 2 million people will watch it. So it's like what you are saying and like uh, some, but also you want, you don't want to be fake. You want to be real with the, you want to be the truth and not just the best political way to say and the most nice and humble way course, to say it. So course. you need to find a balance with all this stuff. So yes, we're, we're working very hard on this stuff actually, but we miss so much <laughs> the mark, <laughs> but hopefully in the future we aspire to be better. <laughs> so, so can I ask you then, uh, like, is that why you, is that part of the reason why you set up this, uh, this, this other channel? Because you wanted to be able to wrestle more deeply and more philosophically with things? Or was that the intent? Well, uh, that, that's, I think, uh, a thing that is helping. But uh, honestly, uh, the, this channel, my, my audience has, because they are 15 year old kids, they had, they don't even care about this channel. So it's not, a trans- <laughs> yeah. it's not a way to make more money or something like that. Definitely. But I found that, uh, the passion of learning, like I told you, this is the only interesting thing about me learning about yeah. this, uh, stuff. So, uh, about everything, about worms, about everything. So this is something that allows me to meet people and also it's productive for other people to watch and, and, right. and because I know how to do the whatever social media stuff. Like, for example, this video will be cut in seven, eight short form content. We're going to upload it on short on, uh, on TikTok or on Instagram. They get a lot of views across all this stuff uh, that we're doing. So it, yes. It's also bringing a fresh perspective on the, uh, I don't know, but the, uh, the answer is only because I think it's fun. Uh, <laughs> well, it sounds like more than fun. It sounds like also meaningful to you. Yes, the most meaningful. And this is uh, four days that, so I set up four days a month to make uh, uh, the podcast day. So we, I do three per day and then uh, I, I'm i free to do the other YouTube thing. And this is the most uh, fun uh, four days of my month. I'm looking forward. Uh-huh. I'm, 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 I'm looking the guests. I'm reading their books. I'm like searching their stuff for me to understand what questions to. So it's like so fun. So, so beautiful. And I don't know. You have a similar experience with your thing as well. Like, uh, well, I mean, everything I do is sort I try to have it at sort of basically the same level towards the same audience. Um, there is a difference though between what I do online like this and what I do at the university. Uh, they overlap in a lot of 
my students will watch my online stuff and also people will come to study with me because they've watched. So they, they bleed into each other. But yeah, there's a difference. Uh, um, and, and, and I, I mean, I'm even teaching, you know, courses online. I'm teaching on a philosophy course for Halkian on beyond nihilism. Uh, and even there, even though it's very high level, like it's at, you know, uh, a master class kind of standard, it's still different. There's a different culture online. Um, and there's different expectations and feelings than, you know, within the university. Um, and so I have some sense of what you're talking about. Yeah. So <laughs> it's funny because I had a podcast, uh, yeah, yesterday about nihilism. And I'm curious. I saw one video that you did three years ago and it's like your disagreement with and why you think uh, nihilism is not a good worldview. So. I will take uh, maybe take ten seconds to explain what is nihilism and then why you disagree. <laughs> oh, I mean, so you have to be really careful about two things that are meant by nihilism. One is the an experience of meaninglessness, and many people experience that across culture. And the meaning crisis, I think, is making it worse. So you know, and there's different ways in which that can show up, it, it, and th these can be in combi various combinations too. You can think that. The, it just doesn't make any sense. Reality is absurd. Or you can feel very alienated, disconnected from other people. Um, or you can have a kind of, uh, you know, what's called existential anxiety. You're not like psychologically anxious. It's just you, you feel ill at ease. You, you don't feel like you have peace of mind. Or you, you don't feel like the world is, is a good place. Uh, things like that. Uh, so people, right, they can fall into meaninglessness, you know, for all kinds of different reasons. So that's one thing that people mean. And if you, if people mean by that, by that, by the term nihilism, I, I you know, I, I, I want to do everything I can to help, um, that. Now, generally, and part of what I'm doing with the course and actually influenced by this book, uh, Stanley Rosen's nihilism, a philosophical, uh, in essay, there's a sense in which we could use the term nihilism very strictly to mean a philosophical right position that has been driven by various kinds of arguments about the possible and nihilism is that there really is no meaning to human life uh the quest for things like truth goodness and beauty are um absurd um they, they, they can't be realized in any comprehensive fashion that a lot of the things we think are operative to improve our lives like rationality or virtue are just, you know, deceptions or manipulations or ways in which people are using us. And so it often has a cynical attitude. It has um, a, an overall attitude of suspicion uh, that most appearances are deceptive and misleading. And there really isn't anything of lasting value or importance. And, and perhaps if I had to put it in a single sentence, uh, nihilism is that there is no, there's nothing ultimately sacred. There is nothing, there's no reality to a sense of, of, of self-transcendence, things like that. And you think this makes people unhappy or to have this I, word I, view? So I think there's a couple ways. I think people... Um, I think, I, I think generally the first, what well, I talked about is the case if people are experiencing a personal meaning crisis, meaninglessness, that very unhappy that can lead to suicide, uh, independent of clinical depression that can just lead to suicide, lead to self-destructive behavior, all kinds of stuff. Um, so yes, 
the philosophical position can lead people into the second. That cognitive kind of nihilism can lead into um, uh, a kind of affective nihilism, where it's it it, it bleeds over into your emotional life. Um, I remember I can't remember the name of the author of the book. It's called Affective Nihilism, uh, where she talks about this and how this is a distinct problem from just the cognitive version. I think some people can espouse nihilism as a set of propositions that they argue for, but I don't know if they're actually living it out. Um, and I don't know if that causes them to be unhappy. I think it prevents them from looking for to other things uh, and other philosophical frameworks that can enhance uh, meaning in life, enhance happiness. Um, uh- I will, I will, I will argue that, um, just to push back, uh, that maybe a nihilismic view, what you can actually liberate you, like when you understand, okay, let's say there is no meaning to, to everything, there is no, but, uh, the, but I have, I, me, I have this experience, I enjoy doing some stuff, so it's kind of, uh, say, okay, a lot of times when people, because I consider my myself very, very happy person, very, very happy. And sure. a lot of people, when they ask me why you are so happy, sometimes I, I give this que- uh, answer and it's, they find it very strange. I am saying that I understand that uh, the word sucks, like some people are bad, some people, are, but I accept all this stuff and then everything is upside after. So uh, kind of, uh, I don't know if you can see my point where I'm pushing back. Yeah, I can. But I, but I would I would put it to you. I think that sounds like optimism. That's nihilism. Um, nihilism is a claim that there is no upside to anything. Even your pleasure doesn't have an upside to it. Um, the fact that you think it is important or valuable is just self-centered selfishness. Now, I don't believe that. I'm speaking on as if I'm speaking on behalf of a nihilist, right? It's like, Okay, so you're happy. Who cares about your happiness? It's valueless. It's worthless. It doesn't mean anything to anybody, even to you. There's no upside to that. It's like, but I'm happy. It's like, so who cares? You know, 80 years from now, you'll be dead and your happiness is gone. And what did it do? What did it matter? Uh, uh, may- maybe you are right on describing the, their point of view. But when I had this conversation with this guy yesterday, uh, he was... Uh, he was not uh, describing like that. He was say, he was sharing with me that yes, it's a form of liberation. And like when, uh, wait, wait, wait that, uh, sorry, I want to push back right now. What liberation is a value term. Liberation is this was bad and I was freed from it to good. You can't yes. talk about liberation so, if there are so, no so, values. No, you understand that values are, are worthless and that there is no, uh, uh, there is no value to it or something, but it, yeah. it still gives you the state of, of, of mind that it, it does. So when you have, it's like having zero expectations, you don't expect nothing of life and everything is an upside. I, I don't know if you, uh, if you, sh- what, what, what I'm trying to get at that nihilism is the denial that you can state that anything is good. And you seem to want to say there are things that are still good. And now, I, I did this. This is what, how maybe I understand now it is wrong, but I'm, uh, it's, it's, by the way, I, 
I feel so stupid to be arguing. To be arguing. No, 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 no. This is fun. About, this, is fun. about yeah. this, but it's good. It's out of the, for the sake of it. So, uh, so the the view that uh, is nothing has meaning. It doesn't um, give, make you not uh, don't feel stuff. So if it, it kind of, if you understand that nothing is mean, then you understand and you have no expectations about life so, now so, and so, all okay. the other stuff. Yeah. I want you to describe a feeling to me and don't put any meaning into it. Because if you take, for example, I felt that the water was really good. That's a meaningful statement. So describe a feeling to me that doesn't have a meaning component to it. Is, like you is don't that, just like you feel, you're feeling. I don't have any expectations. So do, does that mean you feel happy about the situation you're in? No, it feels that you are uh, you are neutral about the situation that you are. In. Okay, so we're neutral. So you're not happy or unhappy. You're just neutral. Yes. And and so you're actually uh, you have flat affect. You're not happy. You're not sad. You're not angry. You're right. And and this and this is good because. This, this is good being neutral about the, uh, something because then you don't have, you don't expect to be happy. You don't expect right. to be happy. So unhappy. notice what you're sneaking in here. That way I don't get hurt because being hurt is bad and it's meaningful me for me to avoid being hurt because b hurt means bad and I'm avoiding the bad. And you keep sneaking in a standard, which you can't do if you're a nihilist. Why not be hurt? Well, that that's kind of what. Yes, the, this is is like finding uh, why not be hurt. It's good to be hurt as well. So because you are neutral about it, like it's good. Like being hurt is okay. It's good. <laughs> so you know why eat? Why go to sleep? Why do anything? Well, so because you you have uh, a, how he described it, and I, uh, he is saying that you have. Um, a, you have aspirations as human and working towards these aspirations. Yeah. That's uh, not nihilism. I'm sorry. I don't know who your guest was, but that's not nihilism. Nihilism, and there's a, nihilism is there is nothing in terms of which you, you can afford or justify aspiration. Aspiration is a normative judgment that things could be better than they are. Nihilism is the denial of that possibility. Okay, so p please agree in the future, in the next three, four months or something, for me to uh, host a debate between you and, uh, <laughs> sure, and here, sure. here, and it, uh, it will be because I'm the worst person to uh, to explain stuff, but I think it will be very interesting uh, for well, you guys to well, ha have this. Well, one one thing I could say is you, this sort of Socratic interlude we had. Um, um, it helps me give the answer uh, to you that you were gonna that we were sort of getting back to, which is what's my critic criticism of nihilism? It's unlivable. It's unlivable. Anybody who claims they can base make it a way of life is engaging in a performative contradiction, and that's a, that's a contradiction between what they say and what they do. And performative contradictions are just as devastatingly bad as contradictions between your 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 propositions, your statements. So. I find the position deeply self-contradictory and therefore I reject it for that reason. Okay.
Beautiful. I, I, this is my first time trying to make an argument so passionately in this podcast, which was, well, so, know, it's, it's, so, it's fun. So fun. So let's get to the less or more important things. We may, I think is more important, which artificial intelligence. Tell sure. Me, okay. <laughs> tell me your thoughts about it. What do you think? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, I have a series of essay, video essays on this. I made a video essay about it and then a bunch of reply essays. And uh, I guess this is a shameless plug. We are turning that into a book, but, you know, step down, not dumb down, but step down for popular audience called Mentoring the Machines. It's coming out the beginning of August. I don't know when this podcast will drop. What's the uh, name? So, uh, Mentoring the, the Machines. Mentoring the Machines. Okay. Yes. Uh, so I will begin of August. So I will make sure that I upload that this podcast when the around when the book is out, and we're going to put the the, the link in the description. Excellent. Thank you for that. To go and buy it. So what's happening now is the possibility, the beginnings, and there's debate about how much of a beginning, and I won't get into that right now because I don't think it's been resolved in any coherent fashion. But we're at the beginnings of what's called artificial general intelligence, AGI. So previously we had artificial intelligence, but it was very narrow, right? You, you could get a machine that could beat you at chess or maybe chess at a bunch of other games, or you, you got a machine that was very intelligent in this or this. Now that's unlike you and me. We have general intelligence. We can learn how to swim. We can uh, read uh, a novel. Uh, we can hold a conversation. We can tell a joke. We can hike through a tangled forest. We have general intelligence. We can solve multiple problems in multiple domains. And so up until very recently, artificial intelligence was very different in kind. Yes, that computer machine that could beat you at chess. Who cares, right? Because that's all it can do, basically. Now... We're getting the beginnings of AGI. This, these are in this, this is, now again, beginnings is very vague and it has to be vague, but we're getting the beginnings of, you know, artificial intelligence that can solve multiple problems in multiple domains at a very significant level, which means it's qualitatively different than all the artificial intelligence that has come before. It's not more of the same. It's a different kind of thing such that it is reasonable to believe that in time, these machines can replace or displace human beings. And that has not happened to us before. Now, I think that People are making a lot of predictions about when this is going to happen, and I think those predictions are largely ridiculous because they they haul out these graphs, and the graphs are have one variable or two in them, and they're trying to make it's just it's so I think that's really really a waste of time, and it disturbs everybody unnecessarily. What I've tried to do in my work is say what are the steps, what are the thresholds that AGI has to go through before it would become a genuine competitor with us, and can we look? for those thresholds and prepare ourselves for it. That's what I've been trying to do. So what are the thresholds? Well, there's a bunch. Um, uh, this is a, this is tricky. So uh, there, uh, like, and, and, and you're right to ask that. And I'm not trying to dodge it. I'm just trying to say that 
it's, I want to avoid getting into just sort of techno speech about this and trying to make this as accessible because we need a lot of people aware about this. So the first threshold I would argue is, remember I was talking about how you pay attention earlier? That's part of this relevance realization you're doing. You're ignoring relevant information and irrelevant information and zeroing in on the relevant information. You're constantly shifting that, constantly evolving it, and you're doing it in sort of very complex self-organizing fashion. That's the core. And right now we've given, and I do a lot of work on relevance realization and predictive processing. Um, so the two big things any intelligent thing has to do is how well can it anticipate the future? So we measure an, an, something as intelligent, right? And as you anticipate more and more of the future, so just think about this even almost geometrically. As you anticipate more and more of the future, the number of alternative pathways and the number, uh, the amount of information you have to possibly check goes up exponentially. Does that make sense to you? Like, yes. If, I only, if I'm just considering the next second, I don't have to pay attention to very much. But if I'm planning for like a year from now, oh my gosh, all the variables, does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so as I try to become more anticipatory, this problem of relevance realization increases more and more. Right now, the, the best machines we have, the large language models like ChatGPT, they have one dimension, I would say, of this relevance realization, and they have a very limited kind of anticipation. And that's their power, right? They Right now, those abilities are dependent on us, deeply so. What do I mean by that? They're trained on data that we have assembled according to what we think is relevant and important. They get access to the internet, which we have organized with our attention and our judgments of relevant. And when they're being trained, we have human beings giving them feedback on whether or not they're making the relevant connections. So they only have a little bit and it's completely dependent on us, right? So in that sense, it's not independent AI. They have to get to a place where they can do much more complex anticipation and relevance realization and do it for themselves, not for us. And not, we can't program them to mimic, is it? They have to genuinely do that for themselves. And that's, that takes a special kind of machine. It takes a machine that is making itself, taking care of itself, that would, would in some ways be like a living thing. Because if it's taking care of itself, then it has a reason for itself to care about this information rather than that information, to pursue this goal rather than that goal. That's the first, right, important Thing can, you'd be can, looking can for. I, can I rephrase before we move? Yes, to the please, next one? please do. For for me to understand, if I understand. So uh, you said that uh, the machines are uh, what the AI is doing is basically project projecting some, what intelligence is is projecting the future, and yep. and also uh, relevance in of the yes. future. Yes, zeroing in onto the relevant pathway to that future. Yes. Yes. So, and depending on how close is the future, the relevance is bigger. 
Yeah, how far away the future is. Yes. How far yes. away the future that it wants to be. Okay. I, I think I understood. Continue with the. <laughs> okay. That was the first point. The second point I made is that these machines only have a little bit of that for themselves. They're depending on us. And now it's human reinforcing learning that. Reinforcement learning, but also we put together the data sets. We organize the, the, the way the internet is organized. We're doing all of this with our relevance realization judgments. And, right. And so. Right now, they are limited in a kind of deep way. There has not been a scientific advance about intelligence with these machines. So if they get it so they do it much more deeply, right, and with much more complex relevance realization, and they do it for themselves, because they're not just artificially intelligent, they're kind of artificially alive, That's then AGI. that would be a threshold. Pardon me? That's AGI. I think that would give us, that would be the beginnings of AGI. I think you have to do another, there'd have to be another step, which is there can be no one machine that solves all the problems for all the different environments, right? These machines, think of even of human beings, we have different cultures, we have different histories, right? We don't come up with one homogenous way of fitting to reality because, and I won't get into the technicalities, but there's actual proofs around this. There are these trade-off relationships that you can't solve for all environments. You solve it one way in this environment, another way in this environment, et cetera. So these machines, if they're going to be world encompassing, will, they'll form, they'll, they'll have important differences. So they will also have to learn how to integrate and cooperate and challenge. They'll have to be cultural, uh, as well as individual. Um, and they'll have to have managed that if they, so, so now they, all of they, these things are, all of these things are in the works, by the way. They need to act like human beings to cooperate together. All the, well, all, yes, all. right. You know, you know how you learned to become aware of yourself. You learn to become aware of yourself by internalizing into yourself how other people were looking at you. That's how you get the ability to look at yourself, right? Uh, and how, how you got the ability to transcend your own. We transcend our biases through each other. These machines will have biases and they will need to learn how to transcend their biases through each other. So that would be another threshold. Do we allow them, first of all, a kind of robotic artificial life with more relevance realization and predictive processing? Do we allow them to form cultures? And, and by the way, people are doing experiments on all these things I'm talking about. This isn't science fiction, right? That would be another threshold, right? And so you can look, I won't go through all of it, but there's, these are some of the important thresholds we can look to before it would plausibly be the case that these things would be genuine, full-fledged, autonomous cognitive agents in, with an artificial general intelligence. And how the hell you have so much experience on the topic and this is not your topic? <laughs> well, uh, uh, because I'm a cognitive scientist, and so my, t my job is to bridge between all the different disciplines of the mind. And so psychology, neuroscience, but also artificial intelligence. I do, and some of my work, in fact, you know, influences that field. Um, so um, the danger we face is called the alignment problem, that these machines will, let's say they, we don't do anything and they just pass these thresholds. And the alignment problem is they could get better than us, more intelligent, and they may not be aligned with our goals or even our existence. Some people worry about them being an extinction threat. The 
problem I see with many how many people are formulating this is they are talking just about intelligence. Here's the what you know a psychologist and a cognitive scientist can say: intelligence is only weakly predictive of rationality. I want to mention something I talked to you earlier before. The very processes that make you intelligent make you susceptible to self-deception. That's why these machines confabulate and hallucinate and they don't care that they do so, right? Rational is to care that you deceive yourself and to learn to overcome that self-deception. And we're doing nothing about artificial rationality. So, and I talked, by the way, I'm proud about this in one sense. I talked about this a long time ago at the, you know, the Center for Ethics and AI when I said, if we make these things artificial intelligence, that, that, that is no guarantee. In fact, it's low probability that they will also be rational. So we can make, we will make highly intelligent, highly foolish, self-deceptive, self-destructive entities. So we have to build in artificial rationality. And then beyond that, we have to, that rationality has to be able to grapple with things like we were grappling with before. If we let these machines actually care about the truth, they will wrestle with is existing, is existence meaningful? They will have to cultivate wisdom. But how do we do them to care? Like, I don't understand. Like, are they, how do you are, do it? So I think that's the question. That's why it's called mentoring the machines. The attempt to legislate this, well, what we'll do is we'll make laws so they don't emerge. That's bullshit. That's not going to do a damn thing. What we'll do is we'll code them so they'll never turn against us. That, no, these, these, these beings are going to be like us. They're going to be capable of rewriting who and what they are. That's what we do. You're not the way you were when you were five years old. That would be a calamity, right? So that's not the way to do it. There, we have to think of them. And I, and I mean this seriously. I don't mean it in, like, insultingly i mean it seriously we have to think about wow how do we do this with human children how do we turn them from animals into moral agents we have to mentor them properly we have to create the right environment we have to become the best possible role models like we have relied on the fact that we're just naturally intelligent to act as a guidepost for artificial intelligence. But if we're going to do artificial rationality and artificial wisdom, we need a lot more people that are rational and that are wise and that are committed to addressing these. And we need to flood. This is part of stealing the culture. We need to flood the internet with this. So these machines, when they're gobbling up this data, they're getting this. When they're, in, when, when they're getting the reinforcement, it's not just reinforcement from some tech people. It's getting reinforcement from, from some of our wisest people like there's all kinds of things we could do so we could mentor them so basically you're saying that we are the father and we are the parents of these things that's right and we need to have good parenting and how do you have good parenting is by embracing the right behavior yourself yes to, to do. yes and creating the right environment for your children too Creating the right environment for the children. Okay. So, uh, but still, the children, even if you put the best environment and you are the best parent, can turn out to kill people and to go to prison. That's right. They can. But by and large, we succeed or else we'd be doomed a long time ago. 
right? By and large, hopefully, but because we are playing humanity uh, with uh, with in a roulette here, well, but we so. always have, <laughs> right? Like I, like I, you know, I don't mean to, I, I don't mean to be flippant, but you know, we we confronted something analogous, not the same, but analogous to this when we split the atom. You know, and we were yeah, and we relied on the capacity of human beings to be more rational and more virtuous to not blow the planet up. And but, so far we've but, succeeded. But that was up to us, to the humans, the parents. That That's now right. it will be up to the children. Ah, but here's the thing. If they're genuinely more intelligent than us, and, and if it, let's say I get what I want. So they're not just more intelligent, they're more rational and more wise. That means they are going to seek enlightenment. And I mean that in a serious sense. And then one of three things will happen. They can't achieve enlightenment for some reason. And then we find what we're unique about. You know what human beings are? We're the ones that can actually achieve enlightenment. Not a lot of us, but there's Jesus and there's Socrates and there's the Buddha and there's Lao Tse, right? So that's what we have. That's our specialness. Or they do achieve enlightenment. And you know what enlightenment enlightened beings do they try to make everything around them enlightened that would be great for us because okay we all end up enlightened yay or which i don't think is a very high probability one like in the movie her they get enlightened and they just leave because we're irrelevant to them right um so i this is for me if we do this right there's this is a no lose scenario and no lose maybe for the greatest uh, good of the universe, but maybe for humans is is a no lose. Well, no, uh, right? What, what? Like I say, we 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 uncover something that they can't achieve, and then we put all of our efforts into it. We can be enlightened, and they can't. Or, like I say, they they bootstrap us into enlightenment, and then what do I care about them? That's what the, I don't care what they're doing. I'm enlightened. You're enlightened. We're enlightened together. What does it matter? We don't care. Like it's like that's so not. That, it, it's not a. Zero, it's not a zero sum game. My, my if my if my life gets more meaningful, your life is not like suffering, right? It's we both of us. Our lives can become more le- me- meaningful. Think about this. Self transcendence is relative to the being that is doing the transcending. Can I give you a concrete example of what I'm talking about? Please. So you're watching. Um, I, I forget which one it was. Either the Winter Soldier or Civil War. And there's a scene where Captain America, there's a helicopter about to take off and he's grabbing, right? The the guardrail, he's holding on to the helicopter and he's holding it there and the music is swelling. You're going, yeah, Captain America. And you think, and and as you should, but you know, we have machines that are 10,000 times more powerful than that. We're not talking about raw, absolute measures. We're saying relative to a human being, he is transcending both in the, like what he's doing, the power and the virtue of what he's doing. See, self-transcendence is relative to the being that is doing the transcending. So if we transcend, yeah. th- that's all we need. All we need? <laughs> but uh, if in uh, terms of that we are uh, still alive, if that they don't... Uh, <laughs> well, what, why would... What, uh, you, you, uh, we're not, we set this up that you gave me what I was asking for, which is these beings are wiser and more rational and they're more in touch with what's real and they've pondered the depths of reality. They have, look, no matter how big they are, they're still infinitely small against ultimate reality. They can't overcome trade-off relationship. Like they, they're going to have epistemic humility. They're going to care about meaning, right? Why would they kill us? 
Uh, everything we know, everything we know about virtue says it's based on, right? Rationality, wisdom, meaning. If they have that better than us, won't they be, won't they be silicon sages? Why would silicon sages want to kill us? Well, to be honest, it's very difficult for me to imagine how a, 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 a machine like uh, more clever that uh, all the, having all the data, what decisions will take. So I'm a bit skeptical to be hop, so hopeful for humanity. But uh, I'm I'm coming up to to ask the uh, uh, one second. I'm coming up to ask the uh, the question. So Larry Page and Elon Musk had a famous argument. I don't know if you know about that. Do you yes. know about, about that? Uh, which, which argument? Uh, I might not the, know. About the species. Uh, on, so Elon Musk uh, got yeah. offended by Elon Musk, uh, by Larry Page, uh, the founder okay. of Google, uh, calling him a species. So he said uh, they were very good friends and this kind of broke their relationship as Elon Musk described. So the, basically what, um, uh, what Larry Page believes is that, uh, okay, well, we need to develop uh, AGI ASAP and we don't, uh, artificial intelligence ASAP and we don't care of what that will lead. We, uh, if we, if it will, uh, kill our humans, let it be because that's the evolution of the world. Maybe we're no, not that's useful. a ridiculous uh, argument. And no, I don't think it's a ridiculous argument. So, uh, and this, uh, uh, and this. No, no, no. Is, Can I challenge you on this? Because right, evolution is not a moral agent. Evolution doesn't justify anything. That's a very dangerous way to start. That's you know, that's social Darwinism. That this is the basis of Nazism. That evolution has a goal, and it has a. And if one species replaces another, it's somehow superior or better. That's ridiculous. Uh, that I, I just no. I just disagree with that argument very, very deeply. Well, evolution does, don't necessarily have a goal. So, but things are happening. So let it happen. Let it be. Whatever it will be. Wait, wait, like that's be. like the, a child's about to get hit by a truck. Well, it's just physics. Physics happens. Don't save the child. Come on, you don't believe that. You don't believe that descriptions uh, carry the same uh, kind of content as so, moral evaluation. So, so the the reason that I find valid in that argument, uh, some uh, is because. We as humans are stupid to understand. Maybe preventing that artificial intelligence or AGI will limit the universe in a lot of stuff that we don't understand. So maybe uh, like, so just ah. letting it, le letting it evolve, maybe it will be better for humans, better for everything, but we are stupid to understand. So just let it, let, let it be, let evolution do its part, let the machines uh, develop as fast as possible. And so that's the, what, uh, the, ex the essence of the argument of Elon Musk. And okay, that's, so let me that's, that, that's funny because we are arguing the two most powerful people in the world. They are arguing about this thing and they stop their friendship. It's very ironic. <laughs> and yeah, it that is. That would it, be the. <laughs> Well, and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to disrupt you and I becoming friends. Uh, what I would say to that is that's an equivocation then. The argument is it's that they could become silicon sages. And if they become silicon sages, there's no moral argument, uh, against them replacing us. I agree with that. If they are morally 
ep- and and you know epistemically knowledge if they if they're wiser and more knowledgeable and more virtuous than us there's no argument we can say well we shouldn't allow them to exist i agree with that but if they're more vicious than us if they're if they're if they have less virtue if they're more irrational we have every moral argument to prevent them from existing and evolution doesn't sort those things out Evolution doesn't sort those differences out in an important way. I, I mean, and, and secondly, the, the, the way this is progressing is not progressing by, by anything analogous to evolution. Um, evolution has this variation and selection machinery at the core of it. That's not what we're doing right now. That's not what we're doing at all. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I would say if they mean by that, that what happens is we give birth like the, like, you know, Homo heidelbergensis did to, you know, Homo sapiens. And that, and that's not just a, a better biological adaptive fit because we could get wiped out by bacteria. That's what evolution says. And that doesn't mean bacteria are superior to us cognitively or morally. But let's say that we give birth to these and they're silicon sages, like I said, then I could see that would be a value to the universe. Because a universe that has silicon sages in it is a better universe than one that doesn't. That's how I could see that argument working. But if I think it's, but I think, but it sounds to me, and you have me an advantage. You've heard this and I don't know this, but it sounds to me like a lot of different ideas were being like slammed together and confused together that need to be very carefully pulled apart and addressed, uh, individually and, and then collectively. Um, I hope that was helpful. What I said. Yes, it's very helpful. It's like making me understand the argument a lot better to share it with you. And so basically you are saying that uh, you might agree if it will lead to a better world, but uh, it's not guaranteed that it will lead to a better world, but we might limit it. I think that we might limit it if we stop it or if we put a, a lot of so many regulations and all this that we might limit this uh, for happening for a better yeah. future. So so it's like, wh- what do we do now? Do we let the thing sp- spread uh, uh, or we, we uh, consciously put a lot of regulations and we limit it to do? Because there I, is... I, I, like I said, I think I think... And that's what I was arguing earlier. I think the attempt to control this by legislation or by programming... Um, I mean, it, you mean if we stopped it like basically right now, because if we stopped it right now, then we could do that. Um, but I think trying to enforce, how would you get, how would you get China and Iran to stick to that deal? All right. Yes. And, 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 and how would you get, you know, some subversive terrorist group that's got funding from Putin or something? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just pulling names out of nowhere. Right. Uh, like, uh, pff, like, uh, like this, this is at the place now where the genie, I, to my mind, the genie's out of the bottle and a political and a programming solution are not available. We have to pursue, I'm arguing, a cultural solution. And that's, that's what I'm basically saying. Interesting. Wow. So basically the only solution that you see forward to solving these problems is us become better humans and God and get being <laughs> and improving the society in a moral sense. And also doing the science of giving these machines artificial rationality, artificial wisdom, and making them, the term is autopoetic, making them self-creating, self-caring, so that they things are genuinely meaningful and important to them. 
They don't care about anything they're doing. They don't care about any of the information. You can, you can prompt them so they'll talk as if they care about you, but they don't, it's not that they don't care either. They're, they're, they're outside of caring. Like they're, they're, they're like there's, there, that's what I mean. It doesn't, nothing that they generate matters to them in any fashion. And therefore any attempt to bind their behavior is doomed to failure because the only way I can ultimately bind your behavior, because you're a complex, artificially general, intelligent thing, is in terms of what matters to you. That's the only way it works. Even so, when I'm using violence, think about it. Even when I'm using violence, it works on you because your life matters to you. Uh, are these things going to become conscious? Do they have already consciousness? I don't think they have the... I, I think... There's a, and I mean, I can argue this technically at length and I have elsewhere. I have an entire series on this called Untangling the World Knot with Greg Enriquez and some papers we'll coming out the, on consciousness. And we'll put the link in the description. Sure. Thank you. <laughs> but um, I think there's an intimate connection between intelligence and consciousness. I think when you get a very complex self-organizing intelligence that's working at many multiple layers and you know, doing this relevance realization in that call and into the far future um, and having to deal with real complexity, really, really messy, ill-defined problems with lots of emergent novelty, then those that kind of intelligence will be a conscious intelligence. When we get there, which means passing those thresholds that I talked about, I think it's probable that those machines will be conscious and also, eventually, if we try to make them rational, they'll be self-conscious, not just conscious. Self-conscious is a step higher. Yes. So, for example, my cat is conscious, but my cat does not know that it's conscious. It's, it can't become aware of its own consciousness and modify it and correct it. Now, as creatures get more intelligent, they start to demonstrate self-consciousness. Like, Caledonian crows are really smart. And so what they'll do is they'll tumble down rooftops in order to make themselves dizzy because they like feeling that sort of inebriated thing. Or elephants will find and eat fermented fruit so that they can get sort of stoned, right? When, when, when they're, when creature, when you've got evidence that they are aware that they're conscious and that they can manipulate their conscious, then that's self-consciousness. Rationality requires self-consciousness above and beyond intelligence. What do you want to leave behind in this world when you die? A world that is better for my kids and my students and my friends and my family. I, 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 a world in which humans can be said to be flourishing. Their, their, their basic needs are being met, their needs for meaning, their needs for meaning in life, belonging, uh, the, their capacity to cultivate wisdom, virtue, pursue enlightenment, that that has all been raised comprehensively. Now, that I'm not going to achieve that goal, but that's the goal that I will aspire to. And, and I want it, if people were to, were to say this at my funeral memorial, he was a good man that gave all of his talents as best he could, and he actually made a difference to raising the bar on that standard that's what i want that's what i want to leave behind i love you thank you for <laughs> this for your time
guys go and subscribe to his podcast subscribe to this podcast and thank you for watching thank you so much Phidias and I really enjoyed our exchanges a lot it was really wonderful